0: Okay, hey, we can let the uh, children be dismissed, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to that Psalm, Psalm 115, Psalm 115. Obviously we're taking a bit of a detour from our study in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, this week. topic of my discussion is this, hope for troubled times hope for troubled times. This is a psalm that a few weeks ago began to make an impression on me. It was one I started to meditate on and think about. And uh, there's one particular verse in it that really caught my attention, and it's verse 3. It says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. We live in a world that in many ways is deeply shaken uh, Probably the most uh, preeminent struggle that our world is facing currently is the the struggle with finance, financial companies of enormous size, a company like Lehman Brothers, basically evaporating, brought what uh, World Magazine called shock and awe to Wall Street and Main Street. Uh, Institutions that we looked at and said, you know what, they're going to be there. You got money, you want to put it in a safe place, put it in Lehman Brothers, it'll be there. Well, guess what? not there. It's not there. And if it wasn't for the government stepping in and helping a lot of other institutions, many other institutions would have simply evaporated. The bank that we have used uh, as a church family for, I think it's about uh, six or seven years, Wachovia. And I will never forget the branch manager saying to me there, because we had at that time, we don't anymore, but we had over $100,000 in savings there for building programs for the future. I remember her saying this to me. She said, well, if Wachovia Bank goes down, everything's going down. And I said, okay, good. We'll leave our money there. And I talked to Bob Dietrich and I said, okay, let's go, okay, all right, good. We'll call you. What was she saying? You can trust Wachovia Bank. Well, guess what happened two weeks ago? You can't trust Wachovia Bank. And I know for many of you, You're looking at the current financial crisis and you're wondering what the impact of it might be on your future. There is a growing cloud of pessimism that is affecting not only the world around us, but also the church. My experience and discussion with brothers and sisters has reflected some of the same sense of angst that I have wrestled with in my own heart. We live in times that are uncertain. Times that cause us great confusion. The global situation is at best unpredictable. Not only monetarily, but also in terms of military. Countries rising up against countries. There are many areas and degrees of uncertainty. For many, the situation that we look at is, at some levels, unprecedented. I looked at an article this morning on the webpage about a comparison between the Great Depression, and the current fall in the stock market. And the basic conclusion is this, it's never been this bad before this quick. What we're experiencing now is unprecedented. We've never seen it drop this far this fast in the history of America. I thought, you know what, I just love looking at those things and I feel so encouraged. Can I say that we as Christians are far too quick to buy into the pervasive pessimism of our day? Perhaps in a way that to our surprise may really yield at some level a practical atheism that we tend to practice. Because we're trusting in things other than God while we say that we love the living God. We buy into this pessimism, we buy into the negative talk and sometimes the Christian voice is indistinguishable and we are too quick to act in ways that are godless. And I wonder about the effect of that on the world that I live in, I wonder about the effect of that on the testimony of the body of Christ who says that we serve the living God who controls all things, who is enthroned in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. I wonder about the impact of the pessimism that often enters into our language. And as I wrestled with this thought, this fact that the Christian's voice can become indistinguishable in a world where there is struggle, I I, I thought about this question. How many of you in this room today came to faith in Christ because of a complaining, fear-filled Christian? thought about that. How many of you came to Christ because you encountered a Christian who was pessimistic and filled with fear about current circumstances? And I know the answer to that question. The answer to that question is there is not one person in this room who came to saving faith in the crosswork of Christ because they met a complaining, pessimistic Christian. But I am sure there are many Christians in this room who came to faith in Jesus Christ in part Because they saw a child of God who was going through a series of difficulties in their life that should have produced pessimism. And it would have been justifiable in in your understanding as you observed their life. But they showed you faith in a living God who loved them enough to send His Son to die on the cross to pay the price for their sin. They had been set free. Their eternity, eternal destiny was secure. And as you observed their life in the midst of their trials, you saw something that you desperately were missing in your life. A peace... That defied explanation. A peace that you wanted in your life. The psalmist in Psalm 40 kind of captures this kind of thought when he says these words. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the miry pit. And out of the mud and clay. He set my feet on a rock. And gave me a firm place to stand. And He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and be inclined to trust in the Lord. This morning my challenge goes to us as a church family. What is the world around you seeing right now? What do they know of the Christian response to times that are undoubtedly extremely difficult to wrestle with and deal with? Sometimes when you look at retirement accounts, you look at circumstances around the world, you look at elections and all the political issues that everybody gets all torn up about. Do we sound like them? Because we shouldn't. We shouldn't. I mean, sometimes we need to say that we have an overwhelming tendency to sound like godless people when we know the living God. We wrestle with what it means to have a God who is in total control while we deal with circumstances that we can't control or make sense out of. And I believe that this psalm will help us to talk to ourselves, to cause ourselves, to encourage ourselves, to remember certain biblical truth that will encourage our hearts and give us hope in times that are unstable or that cause trouble in our hearts. I want us to take a cue from the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 when he grabs himself by the scrub of the neck as he's going through a time of struggle and he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Go look in the mirror when you get home. And say, what's your problem? What's bothering you? What are you letting steal the joy of God from your life? What is it? The psalmist grabs himself by the scruff of the neck. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. For I will yet praise Him. He is my hope and the lifter of my countenance. Folks, sometimes we get to take the Word of God, smack ourselves over the head with it and say, what are we doing? Why do we continually let ourselves be God-belittling in our lifestyle? Why do we express a panic that is not fit for children of the King? Why do we do that? And this Psalm, Psalm 115, and I promise you I I won't preach it as well as Roger read it to you, okay? I thought it was a sight and sound, Roger. I wanted to go pay an admission fee, okay? awesome. We're going to have you and Ron Lee read the Bible every Sunday, okay? And I'm just going to shut up, and I'll just collect my paycheck, and I'll be content, okay? That's what I want to do. Here, here, here's the, the thrust I want to give to you today, just from this text. I want to say that you will find hope and kill complaint and glorify God when you remember the basic truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture, okay? You will find hope Kill complaint and give glory to God when you remember just the basic truths that are wrapped up in this passage of Scripture. And I would argue that if you make it a habit in these times of going to the Psalms on a regular basis, you will find that complaint cannot stand in the presence of God. I am positive of this. I I love this. When you're in heaven, if you're the complaining type, I'm probably somewhere in middle ground on this in terms of being complaining. But if you're like really the complaining type, I have good news for you. When you get to heaven, I suspect that you will never complain. Because you will be in the presence of God. You will see Him for who He really is. And the thought of complaint will never enter your mind. What this text does is it lifts up for us a high view of God that is complaint-killing and God-glorifying. May God help us to embrace those passages. Would you This morning, would you find one verse in this text, that you say, God, I'm going to wrap my arms around this truth and let this kill my God-belittling, complaining attitude that sounds so much like people that don't know God, that it is unjustifiable. That I can't act like this anymore because I serve a living God who loves me and sent a son to pay the price for my sin. You will kill complaint. You will glorify God when you remember the beginning of verse one. I just love this verse. The psalmist says, "Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory, because of Your love and faithfulness." If you want to live in a way that's going to honor God and kill complaining in your life, first do this: remember that God alone is worthy. Of praise. When I say worthy of praise, here's what I mean. He deserves it in spite of the circumstances that you and I face. He is worthy, deserving of praise. And so the psalmist says, Look, it's not about us. You know when you get really complaining? When you think life's about you. That's when you can unleash complaint in your life. Well, guess what? It's not about us. We live for the glory of God. That is our calling before Him. He saved us so that we could be for the glory and honor of His name, Ephesians 1 says. We would display as trophies of grace the glory of the love of God. That's what we'll do in heaven. Heaven isn't about us. It's about God. And we will be, Ephesians 1 says, trophies of this saving grace of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. We will be perpetual witnesses to the glory of God. And I think life is going to be good. Doing that is one of the greatest privileges that a human being created by God could ever possibly have. The psalmist gets it. It's not about us, but unto you. Not to us, but unto you. Fear produces in us a profound and inappropriate testimony before the world around us. Praise will lift us out of despair and will cause us to realize that God is the one who deserves the glory. Is it any wonder that when Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer, He starts it by saying this, Our Father who art in heaven, and what's He say? Hallowed be Your name. What's that saying? Father, it's about You. Christian, when you bow your head to pray, it's not about you bringing all your requests to get everything you want. It's about you saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. To you belongs all the glory. Hallowed, glorified, exalted be your name. That's what it's about. So when I face troubles and difficulties in my life, it's not to us. I don't have a right to complain. I can't say, God, I deserve better. I can't say that. God does. He deserves all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. This verse, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, was the verse that God brought to the mind of William Wilberforce when he finished his 30-some-year-old battle with the British House of Commons to abolish slavery. He was so... Hi, Victor and Diana. Good to have you guys home. He was so integral to that battle that when victory was achieved... The verse that God brought to his mind was man-belittling and God-exalting? Wilberforce said, this is the truth here. Not to us, not to us, but to God belongs the glory. What was Wilberforce afraid of? That everybody would think it was about him being a tenacious political warrior. And that's what won the day. Wilberforce understood that it was God who gave him victory in the British House of Commons to see slavery abolished in that land. Folks, when you face a victory, when God brings you success in your portfolio, what do you think about? Oh, I made good choices. No, that's not what Wilberforce said. What Wilberforce said was not to me, but to him alone be the glory. And he lived in a context where everyone had to say, you know what, Wilberforce, you're the man. You know what Wilberforce was saying? He says, I'm nothing. I am nothing but a servant who yielded to the call of God in my life. What is it? Look what God did, not to us, but to your name be the glory, folks. What a complaint-killing perspective that is for us as Christians. Revelation 4.11 starts to come to my mind as I think about this. You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power and blessing. For you created all things, and for your glory they exist and have their being. Life is about the glory of God. And when we as Christians live for that purpose and enjoy fulfilling that purpose, greater joy comes to our life. Not because we pursued joy, but because we pursued passionately and persistently the glory of God. Your greatest joy in life will not be found in self-exaltation. It will be found in lifting up the glory and honor of God. So the psalmist begins with this perspective. Remember that God alone is worthy of praise. Another thought to remember in times of struggle found in verse second half of verse 1. To you be glory in everything, to your name, not to us, not to us. Why? Because of your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why should God be praised by humanity? Why should God be praised by those who have been redeemed by the shed blood of His Son? second half of the verse gives the reason. Because of your love and your faithfulness. When you go through times of struggle... Which for many at this time are unprecedented. Remember the character of God. That's the second thought this morning. Remember, He deserves the glory. Secondly, remember the character of God. What is He like? Well, the psalmist says, Because of your love and your faithfulness, that's why you should receive glory. What is this idea of love and faithfulness? The word for love is steadfast love, it is Hesed in the Old Testament it refers to the covenant-making love of God. Let me give you a distinction. From a biblical perspective, when you get married, you form a covenant. From a worldly perspective, you sign a contract. Okay, Contracts are dealt with in this way. If people don't uphold their end of the contract, we say they voided the contract. And so the relationship is de facto terminated. The biblical perspective is that marriage is a covenant, it cannot be destroyed. The love that God has for you is a covenant-keeping love. It's not a contractual, conditional love, it is an unconditional love by which He bound Himself to you for eternity. The psalmist says, God deserves to be praised in any and all circumstances because His love for me hasn't changed even though it may have apparently changed. What happens? We go through a time of difficulty. Here's what we're doing in the difficulty. We're going like this. What are we saying to God? Do you, do you know what you're doing? Do you have this under control? Do you really have my best interest in mind? The psalmist says he deserves all the glory because his character is made up of a steadfast, unfailing, merciful love. And the next word that he uses I love. Because of your love and faithfulness. That is the character of God that is durable and reliable and faithful to us in all circumstances. He loves us so much. And what He wants us to do in the midst of our difficult circumstances, He wants us to remember His character, that He is devoted to meeting our needs and taking care of us in a covenant orientation that is in an unbreakable way and we can rest in him and trust in him and rely on him in all those circumstances what is our tendency our tendency in the midst of struggle is to doubt what to doubt the goodness of god to wonder if he is fully aware of what is going on to wonder if he is really in control that's our natural tendency that's why the psalmist says this not to us but to you belongs glory because you are a God of faithful love, of covenant-keeping love, and you are a God who is utterly faithful to His children. When I go through times of struggle, times of difficulty, I tend to cultivate a heart of complaint towards God. That is my sinful tendency. Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Why don't I just embrace the problem and say, God, show me Your glory? Why isn't that my first instinct? Know why? Because often I can't understand the purpose for the struggle I'm going through. And my assumption goes something like this If I can't understand the purpose for the trial I'm going through, it probably doesn't have a purpose. That's a God belittling attitude, isn't it? Instead of saying, as I go through the circumstance of difficulty, God, what is it that you want to teach me through this? What is it that you want to show me? Tim Keller refers to this book in his book called The Reason for God, which I would highly recommend to you. He does a chapter on how could a good God allow suffering. One philosopher that he quotes puts it in this way. And what he's saying is, evil and suffering isn't evidence against God. Often people believe that. He says, if a good and powerful God exists, He would not allow pointless evil, but because there is unjustifiable and pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. He's quoting from a philosopher there. Okay, because of all this trouble around me, I end up with a God-belittling perspective or a God-demeaning perspective. He says this then in critique of that. Tucked away within this assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be what? Pointless. What is that? That's the height of human pride. It says, if I don't understand the purpose for the circumstances that God has allowed in my life, then there can't be a God who is controlling the circumstances in my life. The psalmist argues something quite different. God in His grace and in His mercy allows us to go through times of difficulty so that He can reveal His glory in our lives and show us His plans and purposes according to and faithful to His love and covenant commitment to us as his children. We could summarize this verse, I think, by saying this. He always acts in a way that is consistent with his character. The way the psalmist puts it later is this. He cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself in his care and love for his children. That leads us then into verse 2. Verse 2 says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Because that becomes the issue. If Israel as a nation is struggling in a time of difficulty that is at some level unexplainable, and the nation begins to turn negative towards God, the world around them is going to look at the nation and say, verse 2, where is their God? And the psalmist is saying, why are you letting the nation say that? Verse 3 then is his answer to that. This verse fits in a powerful context. When the nations say, where is their God? The psalmist says, I have a response to that question. Was that a question or was that an accusation? His response is verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Folks, that is an amazing statement. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. The third thought that I'd like to leave you with this morning is this. Remember the power of God. When you're going through circumstances that you can't change, that you can't alter, that you can't positively affect, remember the power of God. We, remind, we are reminded in this verse, in answer to verse 2, where is their God? He is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. Who is he? He is the creator God from heaven. Revelation 4.11 brings us back to this, doesn't it? You are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power and blessing for you created all things. You have absolute sway in the world that I live in. You created it all. You have absolute authority and control over it in its totality. Our God is in the heaven. The idea is that He is the Creator of all things. Secondly, that He is sovereign over all things. He not only has the power to work in all things, but He sovereignly is in control of everything that you and I experience. A way that, a way that you can say this, He does whatever He pleases. He does what pleases Him. He is free in regards to His acts that express love and judgment. Okay, He is free in regards to His acts that express His love and His judgment in the world that you and I live in. Whatever He does, because of His steadfast and faithful character, is proper and is right. He does what He wants to do, but He is not, and this I think is very important, He is not capricious, He's not vindictive. He, when He expresses His anger, isn't having a temper tantrum. If you remember watching the movies as a kid, I remember one movie, I think I get this name correctly, The Bridge Over the River Kauai. How many of you remember that movie? Okay, tells you how old you are. Okay, you remember that movie. I remember watching that with my family. I don't know how many times. But there's a scene in that movie where the gods are rumbling in the distance above the mountains. Okay, there's a big lightning storm. What they say to each other, oh, the gods must be very angry. Okay, they're throwing a temper tantrum. Folks, understand this. No matter what difficult circumstance you're facing in your life, it is not the result of God setting aside his character, his commitment and love for you, and acting apart from that. It is always God acting in a way that is consistent with who he is. You know, as parents, we say to our kids sometimes, I'm doing this to you, for you, whatever it is. I'm giving this to you, whatever, I'm taking this away, whatever it is. We say, I'm doing this because I what? Because I love you. What are you calling your kids to trust? You're calling them to trust your character. You're calling them to trust your character. What you're saying to your child is, you have to trust me with this. I'm making you buy this car, because it'll be good for you later to know what it is to have to purchase a car. To know that money doesn't. My mom had the money tree thing going on all the time. Well, do you think? Money grows on trees? No, I really don't. I think you have it. <laughs> well, that's why I'm not up back at the tree. I'm talking to you. Okay? For the reason that they would withhold things. Why? because they were acting in a way that was consistent with their character in relationship to me as their child. They, in withholding, were expressing love. They, in giving me something that I deeply desired, and I'll never forget one gift I got, a, a Fuji SLR camera, okay? I was so excited, or, yeah, it was a Fuji. Is an Olympus? It doesn't matter. They gave me this camera. I thought that Christmas did this to me on purpose. Didn't give me a gift. Got through the whole thing and I'm, I'm sitting there fuming, questioning their character, their love, their goodness, their judgment. All those things, right? Why? I didn't get a gift. And like the last thing that happened that day, dad went back in the room and brought out this gift that was each year we decided to give something special to someone in the family that would just be like unique. And I got the camera. You know what I was down when I didn't get a gift? Did they forget me? How could they? Their best son. Third born. I know what it was. It was payback because I was born breach. Okay? I really was. So I know my mom is just looking for a little way to dig me. What I doubted when I didn't get what I wanted was their character. Their goodness. Their love. When God lets you go through hard circumstances, you need to remember something. That when his power withholds, it is the goodness of God in your life. And when the power of God is unleashed with phenomenal blessings in your life, it is the goodness of God in your life. Isn't that what Job had to come to see? Shall I not receive good and bad from the Lord? Isn't he exhaustively sovereign in my life? And isn't he exhaustively consistent with his character in my life? He is full of faithful, steadfast covenant-keeping love to me. He, if he's bringing something bad, look, folks, if God lets America, the United States of America, shake, it may be his judgment, and if it is, it is deserved. And if God blesses this country, it is purely his grace and mercy. It is undeserved. People ask, what do you think about the election? Pray that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Pray that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And I'm not making a political statement in saying that. I said that years ago. Pray that God does not give us what we deserve. Pray that he acts towards us in light of his grace and mercy. Because if he gives us what we deserve, our freedom will be gone. Our financial institutions will collapse. Because we have blood on our hands as a nation. And any love that you experience from God is purely this merciful Has said covenant love that he has for his children and when you experience it don't say oh i deserve this don't say that go to god and say god you are enthroned in the heavens you do whatever you please and in your good pleasure you have blessed us and drawn us into a personal relationship with yourself let that humble you and cause you to cry out to god with a heart of worship remember his power i think of the disciples in the boat in mark chapter 4 When they had their little battle with questioning the goodness of God, you remember the story? The boat is being overwhelmed with waves. It's starting to fill up with water. Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. They go and they shake Jesus. And what do they do? They accuse him of being unaware of their struggle. They doubt his goodness. And they accuse him of forgetting them. He jumps up and he flips them all overboard, right? He could have. He could have. Choose 12 more disciples who believe I'm faithful. You know what he does? He gets up. He exercises his incredible, exhaustive power over the world. And he does the unthinkable. He says, peace be still. And in the mind of any Jewish child, here's what would come to mind. Moses at the Red Sea. He speaks and it is so. They see the waters calm, and they say, you know what? It's really, it's about time. Is that what they say? Now, you know what they do? When they see the power of God, they remember the power of God in their life, they fall on their faces and say, what kind of man is this? Well, you know who he is? He's the living God who's trustworthy and reliable and committed to you with a covenant-keeping love that he will never let you go. Please remember that, folks. Go through the times of struggle. Remember that we have a God who has power to act and work, and He will at the right time in a way that is best for us. He is not standing in heaven during our financial crisis in America, wringing his hands, trying to figure out what His next move will be. He has been in control, and He is in control of the future. Let that settle in. He can see, the Bible says, He is the God who sees in the dark. Think about that. He's the God who sees in the dark. And when He sees something that needs to be addressed, He has the absolute total capacity, unlimited, to deal with that problem. Remember the power of God. The last thought I leave with you is from verses 4-8. through Remember that it is foolish in times of trouble when you have the living God who sits enthroned in the heavens. It is utterly foolish for us to cling to material things. It is foolish for us to cling to material things when we have the living God to trust and to serve. The psalmist goes into a description real quickly in verses 4-7 through seven about idols. Because this was the tendency of Israel to leave off from God and to go after inanimate objects. Verse 4 he says, but they're idols. Who is there? Go back to verse 2. Why do the nations say? That's the connection. The nations had their gods. And Israel had the living God who had demonstrated his authority and power on a consistent basis. He says their gods are silver and gold made by the hands of men. And then just, just the quick that Roger read to us, mouths can't speak, eyes can't see, ears can't hear, noses can't smell, hands can't feel, feet can't walk, Can't, and this last one is powerful, can't utter a sound with their throats. Can't even express a moment of frustration. Not talk here, it's utter a sound. What is he saying? They are, in terms of the sensitive parts of the body, they are senseless and completely incapacitated. They are lifeless Useless, dead gods of their own making. So verse 8 says this, Those who make them will be like them, so will all who trust in them. What is God saying to us? Don't, don't chase after things that come and go. The picture here is of a sad absurdity, and it comes out in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 46. A man goes into the woods, he cuts down a tree. He takes the wood, cuts it into pieces, splits some of it, uses uses it to cook his meal. Another part of that same tree, he takes and he carves into an idol. And he bows down and worships it. What's the picture? The picture is one of absolute absurdity. And then here's what we think to ourselves. You know, those pagan people in ancient times were weird. They were weird. Okay, I've been in India. I've seen people bow down to idols. And I'm thinking to myself, you. in the day that I live in, people still do this? They still do this? Because what am I thinking? They took mud out of the river, took straw and shaped like a scarecrow, and then packed the mud on, and then painted a face on it, and then bowed down to worship it. In my mind, I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense. But the question is this, do we do that? Oh, you say, oh, no, Pastor Tim, there are no idols in my house. None of my house, none of my life. What is it that you and I sadly and foolishly trust in? Do we trust in our education? Not something I wrestle with. Do we trust in our bank account? Do we trust in our portfolio? How did you respond when you looked at your 401? Or someone recently said your 201. How did you respond? I know how I responded. I had that... Okay, My natural tendency is to want to see that go up, and when that's going up, things are good. That's my natural tendency. Do I trust in my home? Do I trust in health? Do I trust in relationships, in a job, in smooth circumstances? All of these, please hear me, can and will change. And so will your ability to enjoy them, because they are not worthy objects of your trust. The only worthy object of trust is our God who is seated in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm, or Proverbs 23 and verse 5, it says, cast a glance at riches. Okay, so do this. Cast a glance. Look at your last statement if you have the courage to do so from your retirement account. Proverbs says this. Solomon says to his son, cast a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off into the sky like an eagle. So here's the question why would Tim Hop want to trust that? You know why? Because I think security is found in that. And the psalmist is saying, ha, 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 No. Our God is in the heavens. Trust him. Trust his character. Trust His power. Trust His love for you. Trust His capacity to handle all the circumstances in your life. Don't panic in a way that is God-belittling by trusting in temporal things. We look at the idol and say, well, I don't do that. Yeah, we do. We do. Anything, any relationship, whatever it is, anything we trust in more than God, that if it's gone, our joy is thrown down the stairs. Anything like that is a violation of the glory and honor that God so richly deserves. The last thing that emerges out of this text is a, is a command, and I like this. Verse 9-13. through 13. Uh, He's just said this. So will those who trust in Him. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear Him, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. Verse 12. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. Folks, listen. Listen. In the midst of troubles, I doubt the goodness of God. What is the psalmist saying? The Lord remembers. If you know Him, He remembers you. He remembers you. When Hannah prayed for a son that she could not have, God gave her her son Samuel. God heard her prayer. You know what she says? The Lord remembered me. He remembered me. The thief on the cross, when he cried out to Jesus Christ, in his dying moment, what did he say? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus looks at that wretched sinner and in His unfailing, sovereign love says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. But folks, would you not trust a God like that? Who hears the cry of His children and remembers them because His commitment to them is unbreakable? You might ask yourself, what's going on here? O house of Israel, verse 9, O house of Aaron, verse 10, all you who fear Him, verse 11. You know what it is? It's a statement about the universality of the love of God for His children. House of Israel, the people of God, the nation of Israel. House of Aaron, the leadership in religious worship. All you who fear Him. Who is that? That's us. That's us. The echo comes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Abraham, in you and your offspring, Israel, all nations of the world will be blessed. That is God's covenant promise. Folks, our tendency, we have to admit it. Our tendency is to fear. And when we fear and complain, we belittle God. And we kill our opportunity to share the grace of God with the world around us. People that observe your life know what you're going through. They know the struggles you have. And you know what they're doing? They're, they're sizing up your life because they know you claim to be a Christian. You know what they're watching to see? They're watching to see if Jesus really makes a difference in your life. Does he really make a difference? And I would argue this this morning. If he is enthroned in the heavens doing whatever he pleases in a way that is consistent with his character, that is in line with his power then you and I should stop trusting temporary things, circumstances, health, whatever it is. And we should commit ourselves to the God who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. And the command that emerges out of this text is this. We are earnestly exhorted in this text three times and then three times. Okay? Trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. He will bless you, bless you, bless you that should bring up something else he's talking about a perfect trust he's talking about a perfect blessing because when he gets into isaiah 6 it is the perfect holiness of god that is remembered stated three times trust him trust him trust him this morning my friend i ask you this question what is it that's bothering you what's causing you to be afraid the answer to that question will probably relate to your circumstances in life How are you going to get the kids through college? Is God going to provide a mate for me that is honorable and God-loving? Are my kids going to be okay? Will I be able to pay to get my kids in college? What if I lose my job? What if they cut back at the school? We have a lot of teachers in our school. What if they cut back? What if this financial crisis worsens? And I can't pay for my mortgage. can't pay my taxes. What if, what if it all starts to run, doesn't it? Here's what the psalmist says. He says, you hope in God. Hope in God. He'll be faithful to us. It doesn't mean it won't be hard. But it means that he wants us to trust him. We're told to trust him in verses 9 through 11 because he is our shield and our help. Psalm 1830 says, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 3.3, 3, you, O Lord, are thy shield. I just love this. Not in front of me. You're a shield. Where? Around me. Psalm 25.3, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. That's powerful. You know what we fear? I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be let go. I'm going to be disappointed. God says no one whose hope is in him will ever be put to shame. Folks, we have every reason to bring Jesus Christ to the center of our lives. To live in absolute and total trust in Him who loved us and gave Himself for us and who has demonstrated His covenant-keeping love through His shed blood on the cross, has changed our eternal destiny. We have hope in a future. We have hope in a future. We are children of the King. And one day, by His sovereign authority, He's going to set the record straight. Today, when we remember who He is, His promise is that He will put a new song in our hearts, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and trust in the Lord. In your difficult times, can I encourage you to do this? Talk to yourself. Take these truths. Take Psalm 115.3, memorize it. When your world shakes, when you open up your statement from your... Uh, retirement account open it and then say this our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases therefore I need to trust him because he is our shield and he is our protector and think about this if there is a watching world and I believe with all my heart there is seize the times of struggle and let them be opportunities to magnify the wonderful grace of God that you have experienced through Christ. Live in such a way that people will be curious about why are you okay with the same thing I'm experiencing and I'm not okay with it? Why are you okay with that? Quote Psalm 115.3 because my God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases and He always acts in accordance with His faithful love for His children. The last word of Psalm 115 is what? You see it? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Psalm 113 through 118 are Hallel Psalms. At the end, you know what David says? He says, Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Why? Because he is in front of the heavens and he's doing his perfect will and his plan. And we have his protection and we have his hope. We have a future with him. We are really, we really are so blessed. We're so blessed. Don't let circumstances steal Your joy. Father, I thank you for your word this morning.